If you have your Bibles, this will be the last time you're going to turn to Esther for a while. So we'll be in Esther chapter 10, looking at the last three verses in this story that we've been working our way through of God's deliverance of his people, the Jews, from their enemies. And just a reminder, next week, uh, Paul Moran will be filling the pulpit. He'll be preaching from Second John. So pray for him this week as he prepares and uh, studies and puts that sermon together for our edification and for our encouragement. And then the week after, following that, we're going to start our study in the book of James. So let me pray, and then we'll get into the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the access that we have to you in prayer and also access that we have to know you through your word. Thank you for your spirit that illumines our minds to these wonderful, life-giving, life-saving, life-transforming truths only found in your word that has the power to save, the power to sanctify, the power to make us more like Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I've titled this sermon, uh, The Story Continues. The Story Continues. And let me read those last three verses for us. It says, Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So this past week, our family took out a portable gas grill and we placed it on top of the dining table. We took out some wooden skewers or sticks. Then we took out some marshmallows and we started roasting them indoors because that's how we do it. Being from California, we don't make fires outside because it will just burn up everything, as you've noticed in the news. So we do s'mores indoors on a little portable gas grill. And that's what we did. So it starts to get the marshmallow at the right spot over the flame. You have to be careful because this is a a gas grill. Uh, And then you, you wait for it to brown just to your preference and to your liking. And then right when you're done, you slide it off onto your graham cracker. But sometimes you get some of that sticky, gooeyness, deliciousness on your fingers. And what do most of us do? You start tasting it because you can't wait. It tastes good. You lick it. But that's just a foretaste. Uh, Once you get your graham cracker, you grab your desired chocolate, and you put it all together, and then you enjoy the marshmallow along with those other components, it becomes even better. It tastes even greater. And so this might not be the best illustration, but I think you get the point. There's enjoyment in the present with an anticipation of greater enjoyment to come. It's just a foretaste of what's coming that's even better and greater and grander, something to look forward to. It's a sample of something greater. Uh, Foretaste has to do with the preliminary experience of a fuller or more significant event. It's a sample of something that lies ahead. We sing blessed assurance 
Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. That's us currently, but it also says it's a foretaste of glory divine. We've been saved and Jesus is ours, but that's only a foretaste of what awaits for those who are his. Seeing Christ in the fullness of his glory is what awaits us as believers. Also, when we corporally gather together as a church for worship every Lord's Day, it's a foretaste of what's to come. It's, as some have put it, heaven here on earth. It's where the saints gather to worship and praise the one who has given them eternal life and to be with fellow brothers and sisters who have been saved by the blood of Christ to worship in unity together with one voice glorifying our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a foretaste of what heaven will be like for us. And so the church, as you see, is very essential. It's valuable. It's a place where you are given uh, spiritual blessings. It's a place where you grow. It's a place where there's fellowship. It's a place where God has ordained and instituted for our benefit, for our encouragement, especially in, when times are difficult, especially when times are hard and when trials come. Uh, we're united as God's people together into this body, and we have the truth of God and the Spirit of God, and He's with us. And so the gathering of the church is even a foretaste of what is to come. And this idea is what we have in this chapter in Esther. Mordecai and Esther have just established the annual celebration of Purim for the Jews and have it written down and recorded so that their deliverance from annihilation from their enemies would be remembered throughout every generation. And there's feasting and rejoicing. That's great, but the story continues for them. There's even greater rejoicing to come. We have come to the end of the story of Esther, but this is not the end of the bigger story in which Esther is only a part of. It's merely a piece in the picture of God's bigger plan. This is a story that has been continued to be continued. It's not over yet. We can't separate and isolate the story of Esther from the rest of the Bible storyline just as it was important for our understanding to know what happened in the beginning of Esther with each consecutive chapter that followed to know what came before helps us to understand what comes after, to make sense of it. And it's the same when we are looking at a book that is part of and within the context of biblical history that begins with Genesis and ends with Revelation. And we just isolated Esther and looked at this story without an understanding of the full picture of God's story we would just see, okay, these Jews were saved from their enemies. Why is that so significant? Why does that matter? Well, if you go back to Genesis, you know there's a promise that we've fallen into sin and we're hopeless and helpless, and God promises to send a Messiah that would come to one day redeem and save his people from their sins. And so there's greater significance when you have the bigger picture. And we're privileged today to have the completed canon of Scripture to be able to do that, to have that full revelation of God in which he wants us to know. Yes, the secret things belong to the Lord, but he has revealed what he wants us to know in his word, and we can know him through his word. And so it's a benefit and it's a privilege for us to have it. So my encouragement would be to, to read it, to know God through it, and to learn what it says and to obey it, because it does come from the mouth of God. The Bible is one story that is a revelation from God about God to know God. 
That's key for believers to understand. We study, we read for the purpose of knowing God first and foremost. And when we know more of God, we will know more about ourselves and why we need God and we must live, and why we must live to obey, worship, and serve Him alone. The more we know of God, the greater assurance we can have and the more confident hope we can have as we live our lives each day. God's sovereignty, if you just think about it, God's sovereignty, His power, His wisdom, His holiness, His faithfulness, His covenant promises, His mercy, His grace, His loving kindness, His goodness, His providence, even His wrath. When you think of that, does that give you more assurance of, or, and hope or less? Would you rather trust in this God, this perfect, unchanging God, or yourself? Your insufficient power, your lack of wisdom, your unholiness, your unfaithfulness. Who do you want to trust? Who do you want to follow? And the amazing thing is, again, that, that God doesn't change based upon how we respond to him. He's always faithful, unchanging, loving. He is who he is, and all of who he is is always who he is, fully, all the time. His character and perfections don't change, and his plan doesn't change either, whether we acknowledge him or not. And particularly in this story of Esther, we have learned about God's providence in the lives of all people, in the lives of a pagan king and queen, in the life of an orphaned Jewish girl, in the life of a Jewish man, in the lives of all the palace officials, in the lives of all the eunuchs, in the lives of the enemies of the Jews. No one can escape the providence of God. So it's necessary for us to understand it and to live in light of it, to know that God is behind it all and to turn to him in full trust. And all these events happened within a 10-year time span. This is just a brief period of history for the Jews under the Persian Empire, which shows God's control and his care for his people in delivering them from their, their enemies and preserving them. But the story, again, continues, and Esther closes with hints of what is to come. And in this section that is about the greatness of Mordecai being highlighted so that we can know that God providentially accomplishes his plan through the ordinary daily lives of people to accomplish his ultimate purpose. So in these three verses, we'll see a contrast between the lives of two men and how they exercise their position of power and influence and in which God was providentially working to unfold his purposes. First, we'll look at King Ahasuerus and see how he was a burden on the people. Secondly, we'll look at Mordecai and see how he was a blessing to the people. So the burden and the blessing. First, the burden in verse 1. Throughout much of the book, King Ahasuerus does not appear to govern his people well. In verse, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, he engages in a seemingly pointless display of his wealth by having all these banquets and feasting to show off his power, his glory, his riches, and everything that he had. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 22, he has a conflict with Queen Vashti that leads to her removal. In chapter 2, he is self-indulgent and is pleased to have a who-can-satisfy-me-the-most contest to find the next queen. He fails to reward Mordecai, who saved his life, one of his officials. In chapter 3, without justification, he condemns a certain people to death and then participates in a drinking party while 
his capital city is in complete confusion. At times, he's oblivious to what is going on around him, chapter 6, and is easily manipulated, chapter 7. And these are not isolated single events. This is his character throughout the story of Esther. He also puts the lives of those within his empire at risk with Mordecai's decree in chapter 8. So essentially, everyone's life in his empire is at risk and in danger because of what happened between Haman and Mordecai. And he shows little, if any, remorse at all for what has happened and what he has done in chapter 9. So the author makes really no evaluative comments regarding the king's actions in any of those situations. And even here, if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it just states, Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. It says what was done, but no further comment on why it was done and what was the motive behind it. Yet the fact that he contrasts the statement about the king setting into place this tribute, which is a burden, and juxtaposing it with his concluding commendation of Mordecai, as we'll see, suggests that the author views the king's action as being another example of his incompetence to rule or exercise his power well. What we see in chapter 10, verse 1, also parallels chapter 1, verse 1. And this reminds us of the thoughtfully composed and structured narrative of the story of Esther. This sandwich-like chiastic structure where we see within the story the parallels being made from beginning to end, and they just fall into the middle where it's the center point, the main focus of what is being taught. And so we see that it started with King Ahasuerus in chapter 1, and it ends with King Ahasuerus in chapter 10. Then we had a conflict with Haman and Mordecai in chapter 3, and in the end, the final conflict between Haman and Mordecai with the battle of their decrees in chapters 8 and 9. The Jews were fasting and mourning in chapter 4, and in the end, the Jews are rejoicing and celebrating chapter 9. And as we get to the middle, to the, the meat of the sandwich, we have the king not being able to sleep in chapter 6, which was the key puzzle piece because all that happened up to that point and everything that happened after that point hinges on that specific event and how he was completely out of control of not being able to sleep. That was completely out of the hands of the king, which serves to highlight God's providence that he was behind it all. So chapter 10, verse 1 parallels chapter 1, verse 1 by emphasizing the vastness and the extent of the king's empire and rule. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And here, if you look, it mentions the land and on the coastlands of the sea, which signifies the whole known inhabited earth. In Isaiah 42, verse 4, in reference to God's promise concerning his servant Jesus, it says, He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And in verse 10 of Isaiah 42, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, sing his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them. In Isaiah 42, verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The same words are used for the extent of the servant's rule and the sources of the Lord's praise. And that is significant here. This reminds us of all that Ahasuerus had done and the vastness and extent of all that he possessed and owned and had rule over. So in our introduction to the king, he was 
boastfully self-seeking, pridefully generous. In, and in our conclusion to the king, he's still self-seeking, but in a burdensome way. Notice what verse 1 says. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute. What does that mean? That means either to impose taxes or to impose forced labor. It has been used to describe both. Regardless, it communicates the idea of a heavy burden, and this heavy burden was placed upon all the people of his very vast, far-reaching empire. That's an interesting closing remark to say about the king, but it serves to show the contrast with what's to come, with Mordecai, as we'll see. And it's clear that Ahasuerus is the king. Verse 2 says it was the king that advanced Mordecai. And verse 3, that Mordecai was second only to King Ahasuerus. So it may seem to us like the attention is on the king. But this statement is meant to be, again, in contrast to what follows, in highlighting Mordecai's greatness, elevating his greatness. In other words, the description of the king's power is intended to highlight the greatness and reputation of Mordecai. But the bigger principle and truth here is that God is the one who works behind the scenes in each one of their lives. Whether you are a king or an ordinary Jew, God can and will work in providential ways in your life to accomplish his purposes. Just go back and read the entire story of Esther. The hidden yet active God working behind the scenes in the story of Esther is the same God who is sovereignly ruling and providentially working today in each one of our lives. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does the unexpected. He works through seemingly insignificant events. He makes what seems impossible, possible. He turns everything around. He keeps his promises because he is sovereignly and providentially working to unfold his perfect plan and he is faithful to care for and protect and preserve his people so that the Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 and promised servant of Isaiah 42, who would also become the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, would turn the entire world upside down. We have to remember that Christ will also return to rule to the ends of the earth eternally, and he will be the one who receives all praise. Remember that this story is continued to be continued, and even in the closing of this part of a bigger story, it hints at something greater to come with these terms and these phrases. The Jews are still in Persia, if you think about it. Yes, they've been delivered from their enemies, but they are still in the Persian Empire under the king, the pagan king. They're still in Persia. They're still distant from God. They're at a low point spiritually. Yet in this dark time, God provides hope and encouragement. He has not left them. He's still with them. He's still working everything out according to his perfect plan to accomplish his ultimate purpose. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Let's look at the blessing. So by contrast to the king being a burden on the people, throughout the book, the author usually portrays Mordecai as working for the good of the people or for the well-being of the entire empire. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, mentions how Mordecai brought up Esther, his uncle's daughter. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, cared for her, her well-being. Chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, speaks of Mordecai saving the king's life which shows his loyalty to the king and his loyalty to the empire. 
chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Mordecai does what he does to get Esther's attention so that he can relay information to her about Haman's plot to kill all of the Jews. He's mourning, he's fasting, he's wailing to get the attention of the servants so that they could inform Queen Esther that Mordecai is going a little crazy so that he can relay information about the decree that he had in his hands and tell her that Haman's planning to kill all of the Jews. He has the well-being of his people on the forefront of his mind. Chapter 7, verse 9 describes Mordecai as the one who spoke good on behalf of the king. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 17, it was Mordecai, Mordecai's decree that gave the right for the Jews to assemble and to defend their lives against their enemies. Chapter 9, verses 20 and 23, Mordecai recorded the events related to Haman's decree and the Jews' victory over their enemies and had letters sent to establish the Purim celebration annually so that they would always remember this event. And in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, Mordecai continues to be presented in this positive light by being a blessing to the people. Look at verses 2 and 3. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. And the phrase that sticks out is, are they not written? Are they not written? Which is identical language used in Kings and Chronicles where things were recorded down in different books to give credence to the historical account and validity of those events. Here we see that it was written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. So let's look at some examples of this real quick. First Kings chapter 14 verse 19 says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. First Kings 15.31 Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Second Chronicles 12, verse 15. Now the acts of Rehoboam from first to last, are they not written in the records of Shemaiah, the prophet, and of Iddo, the seer? The same language is used here, except this is not about a king in the Davidic line. This is about a leader named Mordecai who represents the Jews, who cares for their well-being, who's looking out for their good. So what is the implication here? that he is like a king. And that shows that the line of kings and God's kingdom agenda has not ended. God has turned it around and he will turn it around ultimately so that his kingdom will be established on earth and there will be everlasting hope, rejoicing, and celebration. When Haman had worn King Ahasuerus' signet ring, he was effectively, though not formally, the king of the enemy of the Jews. Now Mordecai wears the king's signet ring, and he is effectively, though not formally, king of the Jews. God providentially used the king to advance Mordecai to his position and to grant favor to the Jews and even to assist them in their battle. Verse 2 again states that the king advanced him. And in verse 3 says that Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. And this brings to mind the story of Joseph who is also a Jew with a high position within a pagan land, where it says in Genesis 41, 
verses 41 to 43, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. This is also in the context where under the rule of Joseph, the wealth of Egypt increased greatly, just as we see here with Ahasuerus and Mordecai. When people bless the people of God, they're blessed. When people curse or oppose the people of God, they're opposed, God opposes them. There's temporal blessings, there's temporal cursings, and there's also eternal blessing and eternal cursing from God. Verse 3 continues and says, And great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Mordecai's greatness is mentioned in terms of not just being in a high position, but how he used it to benefit his own people and to be a blessing to his people, which is in contrast to the king using his position for selfish gain and control. The word translated here as welfare is shalom, which means peace or total well-being. This reminds us that deliverance is not simply the removal of threat. It's more than that. It's also a restoration to a state of complete wholeness and satisfied rest, true peace. This points forward to the one who has, who not just sought, but also bought the good of his people with his own blood. And the one who has spoken the message of salvation, namely repent and believe in the gospel and accomplished it on the cross by saying it is finished for the ultimate welfare and peace of his people. So a question is, in light of what we've seen in Esther and in light of what's to come and Esther looking forward to the coming Messiah and the true rest that comes to those who believe in him, have you repented and believed in the gospel? Have you repented and believed in the gospel, in the person and accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? We are all sinners. We have all sinned against God. God is holy, pure, perfectly righteous. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So we are unable to come to God in our unholy, impure, unrighteous condition. And the penalty for our sin against God is his justified wrath and eternal condemnation and death in hell. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die in our place. On the cross, God treated Christ as if he lived your life of sin, so that God could treat you as if you had lived Christ's life of righteousness. Christ took the full punishment for every single sin that you have and will ever commit once and for all by becoming a substitutionary atoning sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. And he rose in victory over sin and death for your justification. For those who repent and believe, Turn away from your sins. Turn in faith 
to Christ and you will be saved. You will be reconciled to God, forever justified before him. Commit your life to lovingly obey and to humbly serve and to worship him alone for what he has done and for what his son has done on the cross. The deliverance of God's people from Haman's death decree assured the continuance of the Jewish nation from which their Messiah would come. God's plan of redemption will never be stopped. It will never be hindered. No human action can ever determine the outcome of things that is outside the will of God. And God will one day in the future bring about a mass conversion and restoration of Israel. The story continues. The story of Esther is continued to be continued because God has a plan that involves Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world to save his people from their sins and to make all things new. Ultimately and finally, God shows that he is clearly sovereign and that he providentially accomplishes his plan through the ordinary daily lives of people to accomplish his ultimate purpose. In the story of Esther, we see the inseparable relationship between God's redemptive plan and his providential rule in daily life and history. God rules not only redemptive history, but by his power, all of history serves his redemptive purposes. The book of Esther provides great encouragement to these struggling Jews by giving them hope that their enemies will not overpower them, that even threats to eliminate them would not prevail because Israel was and is protected by God, even though a large number of them were outside of the land. This gives them a confidence that exile will end, that their enemies will be put away. This is a preview of something bigger to come. Reversals are possible. The Jewish people have a future. There will always be another chapter in the ongoing story of the survival of God's people. And if you noticed, Esther was not mentioned at all in this chapter. But through progressive revelation, we know that Queen Esther eventually becomes the stepmother of King Artaxerxes, who is the son of Ahasuerus, which is favorable to Ezra and Nehemiah, who are part of the returning exiles, because he allowed them to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. The book of Esther certainly does raise a lot of questions. These questions all lead to the theological answer that Esther provides. God is hidden, but active. God is hidden, but active. It is the power of the active, invisible God. To be hidden is to be present, yet unseen. God is hidden in the narrative of Esther, but not absent. And really, the irony is, in his hiddenness, he's all the more present. God is hidden, but active. And in this, and this is the doctrine of divine providence. God works in ordinary means, means that are normal and that routinely happen in this creation. In other words, God doesn't just work in miracles which defy the created order, but God also works by ordaining everything in the created order to work out for his glory too. Providence means to provide in advance. It is, as one author puts it, the continuous agency of God by which he makes all events of the physical and moral world fulfill the original design with which he created it. This helps us to have the right perspective about everything that is happening. In Esther, 
there's been no mention of God, no mention of prayer. And though the people may have turned away from God, God has not left them. God is still working behind the scenes. There might be times where we feel as if God has hidden his face from us, where he's distant or far or uncaring even. When we consider the iniquity of society, the compromise and hypocrisy of the church, as we hear about these national leaders falling into immorality and and news coming out of their lives, the breakdown of marriage, the breakdown of the family, the promotion and celebration of evil disguised as good. Yet we experience his providence daily and we have to step back and look at the bigger picture. It's not that God is nowhere, but he's everywhere, hidden in plain view in the grand design of our everyday lives. This helps us to trust in him when we don't know what is going on. This helps us to turn to him when we feel alone. This helps us to turn to him when we're in desperate need. This helps to comfort us when we are in times of difficulty and despair. Do you realize that God cares far more for his people than his people will ever know? And that God loves his people far more than they will ever deserve. He's working, actively working. He cares about them when they are in trouble. He cares about them when, even when they don't know he's there. He cares about them when they have little or no interest in him. Do you recognize that there truly is a God behind the scenes? That you can live with complete confidence, knowing that your life is not at the sole mercy of the whims of the world or others, but are silently and perfectly being directed by the providential hand of your Creator, that nothing in your life is ever a mistake. This helps to dispel any fear and doubt. Just think about your life. Think about everything that is going on. Is God at the forefront? Is he the one you look to, talk to, seek wisdom from, find comfort in, seek to please and obey? Do you believe that he is sovereignly in control? Do you believe that he's providentially working it all out for good? Do you remember what God has done and what God has promised? Do you find peace that God will conquer evil in the end for all time and days to come because we know he has the power to do it invisibly here? That there's wisdom in living in the present with an eye to the future, to have this eternal perspective that gives us great hope and encouragement. To know that God is working providentially in the completely secular and ungodly course of human events to save people against all expectation, those who want nothing to do with God. We have clearly seen in the story of Esther, human action is essential to divine providence. Yet God's triumph in history ultimately does not depend on what we do, but on what he does. And again, that's not a, a free pass to live however you want as Christians. As Christians, we love God. We want to obey his word. We want to please and honor him. It's not a reckless life of continual sin. But we know at the same time that it is God who works in us. And we are also working, but it is by his power and his spirit 
that he sanctifies us and that he's growing us. At the same time, accomplishing his perfect plan for us. God is behind the scene working for our good even when we cannot see or do not want to see him. God unfolds his will for individual lives through providence. Should we question his divine providence or simply by faith trust him in all circumstances and in all of life because of his presence and care for us? There's a song called Day by Day. It goes, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me he whose name is counselor and power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days, thy strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me he made. Help me then in every tribulation, so to trust thy promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take, as from a father's hand, one by one, the days, the fleeting, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. So through the story in our study of Esther, we have come to see the great sovereign God of providence working behind it all. We have seen the merciful and gracious God who is faithful to his people in spite of their rebellion and spiritual apathy. We have seen a caring and loving God who preserves and protects his people. And consequently, may we see more of God in every situation and circumstance in our lives. And may that bring us comfort and encouragement and hope in our own personal lives and in the midst of this, again, increasingly evil and ungodly culture that is seeking not to destroy Christians at this time, but is seeking to silence biblical truth and to corrupt Christian values and principles and liberties. As we face afflictions and persecution for Christ's sake, may we know that the story is not over yet, that the story continues, that we have but a foretaste of deliverance, and ultimately that we belong to Christ, and the victory has been won, and we are eternally secure in him, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would we find our delight in him? Would we find him to be our greatest treasure? God is providentially working behind the scenes in each one of our lives. God is providentially working behind the scenes in each one of your lives. God uses people and places them in the right place at the right time just like he did with Esther and Mordecai. We too are always in the right place at the right time, and he is providentially working. God also saves his people and places them into the body of Christ to be used at the right place 
and the right time. If you're sitting here as part of Grace Church, this is where God has called you and placed you into fellowship with. He wants to use you. He wants you to serve the people here. You're at the right place at this right time to serve the people here. Grace Church, would we be united together in faithful service to our King and to one another and to the lost through our proclamation of the gospel, knowing that he has delivered us from eternal condemnation and has preserved us for eternal blessing and has preserved us and kept us here as part of his church here on earth, not just for a foretaste of what heaven will be like, but also to be a light to the lost. We are at the right place at the right time. God knows what he's doing. Everything is in the right place. Nothing is where it shouldn't be. Everything is exactly how it should be. Do we recognize God's providence in our lives? Do we recognize that he's sovereign over it all? And are we, as his children, faithful to obey him and to live for him and to honor and please and glorify him in all that we do? So would God's providence and his sovereignty bring great hope, great courage, great peace as we live the remaining of our days that he has for us here on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our study through the story of Esther and how you have delivered and preserved and protected your people and how you have done the same for us in Christ, that ultimately we are yours and no one can take that away from us that we are secure in you, that the eternal blessings are ours in Christ, that we're awaiting a heavenly inheritance. So as we live in this world that's in opposition to your word, to your truth, that we would not only find comfort in knowing who you are, but to know that you're working in and through each of our lives and working behind the scenes to lead us, guide us, help us to find our rest in you alone. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.